you'd like to turn in there, Psalm 36. Not uh, traditionally a, one, a passage you'd associate with Christmas, I understand that, but we'll see what this has to say and how we see God's love brought to us through it. But before we turn to read Psalm 36, let's bow in another word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word. We thank you for this privilege and we pray that you would bless it now. That you would bless the words that are spoken, that they would be accurate and true. That you would bless them as they are received by us as we hear. That they would be applied appropriately. That they would work in our hearts. That again, ultimately, you would be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 36. An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. The words of his mouth are wicked and deceitful. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. Even on his bed he plots evil. He commits himself to a sinful course and does not reject what is wrong. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your justice like the great deep. O Lord, you preserve both man and beast. How priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Continue your love to those who know you. Your righteousness to the upright in heart. May the foot of the proud not come against me. Nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. See how the evildoers lie fallen. Thrown down, not able to rise. Thus ends the reading of God's word. In the 1970s, the singer-songwriter Billy Joel released the song, Only the Good Die Young. And in this psalm, he, a song, which is actually, a, a psalm is a song, but anyways, in Billy Joel's song, he talks about the, the contrast between living a life for your fun and enjoyment and what he sees in the Catholic Church. And this girl who he has affections for, and this song is, all about the difference between living this, this closed lifestyle and this open lifestyle. About the song, Joel once said, the point wasn't so much anti-Catholic as it is pro-lust. This comes out in many of the lyrics. One of them, a very famous one, being, they say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun you know that only the good die young. And on and on the song goes. This, this anthem of lust. If we want to look at it in light of our psalm, we could call it an anthem of wickedness almost. Pursue that. Pursue what you want to do. It's much more fun. It's better. And I think we can all relate to that. I think we can all feel that even in our own lives. This sometimes questioning of, is it really better to live the way God says? Don't the wicked have it made? 
They seem to do what they want without repercussions. You know, we think of living a a chaste life and, and they don't. They sin before they get married. They can sin while married and, and they do what they want. We can look at this in business. They, they can treat their customers the way they want. They can swindle and defraud, but we can't. Why isn't it better to live the most fun life we can now? I think we can recognize this in our own life, this questioning. And we also might have the reaction of, Maybe we don't desire to do what they are, but we question why we have to continue doing this. Where we're at the end of our rope, maybe. Where we are either oppressed by our own temptations or we're oppressed by wicked around us. And we think we can't continue. What's God's purpose here? What's his goal here? What is he trying to accomplish? Or is Billy Joel right? Well, what the psalm shows us is that ultimately, for the righteous, they receive the steadfast love of God. That ultimately, it's better to cry with the saints, in other words. For what the psalm shows us is that God's steadfast love and justice is the contrast to the wicked and their sin. God's steadfast love and justice is the contrast to the wicked and their sin. And we can see that first in the description of the wicked in the first four verses. The first four verses describe the wicked from David's vantage point, from David's perspective. He has this oracle in his heart. And in verse 1, he sees their transgressions, he sees their sin. In fact, he describes them as there is no fear of God before his eyes. Before this wicked man, there is no fear of God. And does this not describe unbelief? What unbelief is. Having no fear of God. And we see that all around us. We see that in the song that I just referenced. We see that in the belief systems of our day. We see that in the atheists who say, There is no God. Why are you worried about it? I obey him. He doesn't exist. There's the agnostics who say, You can't know whether he exists, so why does it matter? Then there's this this humanistic spirit of of our day that says all that matters is yourself. Your joy, your pleasure, a sort of hedonism to pursue whatever you want. That's ultimately all you can get in this life. We even see this, though, in popular fields. We see this in science. And I don't mean simply the hard sciences. What I mean is the science that seeks to remove God from everything. To remove God from the need for everything. Ultimately, why? Because there's no fear of God. What David saw in the wicked of his day, we still see. There's no fear of God. What's interesting is that this word for fear that David used isn't the one we would traditionally associate with that. We hear the fear of God and we think reverence and awe that a believer has. That's not the word that's used. The word that's used is rather a trembling and fear. A trembling and terror. What David is saying is the wicked don't even tremble at the thought of God. They don't fear him in any way. They don't fear a judgment. They don't fear what he might do. There's no fear of God. 
And we see that more than just in the belief systems of our day. We see that in our culture. We see that in the idols of money and sex and drugs that have replaced God. We see that as authority in every sphere, whether it's family or government, is roundly rejected and condemned. Where worship is scoffed at. Where the church isn't needed. That's what we see. Verse 2 continues and says, For in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. Well, an outcome of not fearing God is that you will be self-deceived. You won't see what you're doing as wrong. Why would it be wrong? You deceive yourselves. And sinners convince themselves that what they're doing is fine. That you can do whatever you want. I recently listened to a, an interview with a, a woman who had a PhD in some, it was like gender dysphoria and sexuality, some, something like that. And they were talking about the causes of, of what we see in, in transgenderism and all these things that are facing our culture today. And it was interesting to hear her and the interviewer talk about this from, a, from an unchristian perspective and try to explain it. And what was interesting is that in the course of their discussion, the interviewer asked her, where do you draw the line? It's a good question. If, if there is no God, if there's no standard, then where do you draw the line? And her answer is, and I quote, if you're harming someone, that, that's wrong. Can you enjoy what you like without hurting another person? That's where my line is. People are free to do whatever they want in the bedroom so long as they're not hurting anybody. I think that describes the spirit of our day quite well. You draw the line at if you're hurting someone. And how does that fit into our psalm and into our description of, of wickedness? Well, the wicked man, the wicked person doesn't even see what they're doing is wrong or they'll deceive themselves into thinking that it's not, that you can do what you want. Everyone tries to hide their flaws behind this, tries to think it's not a big deal, but ultimately you can't. Because God's in control. That's ultimately where David will lead this. But there is a God who exists. There is a God who has a moral standard. That answer doesn't work. But the other reason it doesn't work is that you cannot simply live the way you want and think it'll con- you can control that. Do, just do what you want as long as it doesn't harm anyone and then you're fine. Sin always harms someone. Whether you're hiding it or you think you can, you can't. It always finds its way out. Sin is something that controls. It's not something that can be controlled. This is what the wicked don't see. This is what unbelief doesn't see. And verses 3 and 4 show that. Can you claim to not do something wrong and not have it affect anyone? No. Rather, it spills out of their mouths and infiltrates their actions. And the wicked can't be trusted. And they plot evil. At this point, you might be thinking, well, wait a second. We all know unbelievers that don't seem to fall into this category, that that don't seem to be described in this way, that aren't that bad. Well, David is describing the wicked in in, in very stark terms. He seems to be describing the worst of the worst here. But ultimately, all unbelief falls in this. All unbelief 
is a failure to fear God. And if you reject him, you don't fear him. If you deceive yourself that your sin can't be found out, then you're not walking in wisdom. If you're not seeking God's glory and you're only seeking to glorify yourself, you're on foolish paths. All unbelief is described here. Maybe not in the stark term, maybe not to this degree, but that's what unbelief is. And that's what these four verses are seeking to show, to express the grand level of wickedness, the wickedness in those David sees around him. One commentator points out that there are seven expressions of wickedness here. You don't need to know them all, I'm just going to rattle them off. One, they don't fear God. Two, they are self-deceived. Three, their mouths are wicked. Four, their actions are unwise. Five, their plans are evil. Six, they are on evil ways. And seven, they do not reject evil. The Hebrew number seven represents totality, completeness. The wickedness described here is complete. It's total. That's what David is saying. That's what he sees in those around him. And their rebellion is associated with their eyes and their mouth and their thoughts. In verse 4, as they plot their troubles on their bed, that's with their mind. They don't think right, they don't speak right, they don't even see right. And again, at this point, we might want to say, yeah, that's right, that's what they're like. That's what these, these wicked people are. You're right, David. You're describing them correctly. Well, he is, but can we really say that? Can we look in our own hearts and say, yes, they're like that, but don't we see ourselves like that too? You see, our response here shouldn't be one of, we're different than them because we're better. Our response is, but for God's grace, there go we. How often do we not fear God? How often do we sin knowing that we'll be forgiven? Presuming on God's grace, doing what we know to be wrong because we think, if I do this, I'll just ask for forgiveness. See, we even see this this spirit in us. And ultimately we see that the wickedness described here is described of unbelievers, yes. But that we are no different in and of ourselves. The Apostle Paul actually uses this psalm and quotes from it in Romans 3.18. Quotes from verse 1, and he says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. But who he's talking about here isn't just the wicked, he's talking about mankind. He's talking about man trying to achieve salvation through obedience through obedience to the law, through works. And he says, all are wicked, no one is righteous, there is no fear of God, and this describes all humanity conceived outside of Christ. This is why, in one sense, we can also say, we are no different. There is a sense in which we know that this is who we are outside Christ. This totally wicked person Believers who read Psalm 36 shouldn't so separate themselves as to look down on, but rather they separate themselves to look up to God. And that's what we see 
in the next verses of this psalm, we see a strong contrast. Verses 5 to 9, we see the steadfast love of God. And that's what we move to now, the steadfast love of God. Right after hearing of the wicked in the first four verses, verse 5 says, Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. This is not what we would expect here. You would expect after hearing this is what the wicked are, that you'd see some kind of judgment. This is the wicked, thus God will judge them. This is the wicked, thus he will cast them aside. That's what we would expect. Maybe we'd even expect a comparison between the righteous, between us. Here's the wicked, here's the righteous. But no, that's not what happens. The first words out of David's mouth after describing the wickedness is to describe God's love. And this is better translated as steadfast love. Faithful love. What is, what is David doing here? If you just read through the psalm, it almost seems like it doesn't belong. That this it shouldn't be a part of the psalm, it seems. But what David is doing is he's showing and contrasting the wicked with God's steadfast love that we can see it more clearly. I remember going to a, a movie and, and it was like 10 in the morning or something. We went to go see a movie with my brother and we were walking out of the theater and after being used to seeing the theater and this dark movie theater, you walk outside into the full afternoon sun and we couldn't even see. The sun was so dazzling and because our eyes was, were used to this, this, this darkness, we were better able to appreciate the light. And looking at the wicked and seeing the depths of wickedness in man, all of a sudden you see the steadfast love of God more clearly. You see it for what it is. And how does it do this? It does this by proclaiming that God's love covers all the world in verse 5. That his righteousness is like the highest mountains, that he is the savior of man and beast. And then notice verse 7. This verse 7, I, that verse 7 is better translated as, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. That those words in Hebrew, the children of mankind, are a general term. It actually literally would be translated sons of Adam. The sons of Adam take refuge in the shadow of your wings. How can David say that? How can he use such a broad, general term to describe these sons of Adam who are in God's care? When we just read about what wicked men are. How can he do that? Well, it's because of God's steadfast love. What's going on here is that the wicked who do not fear God, all of a sudden seem to have these blessings. What's David is doing? What is David doing here? Well, number one, David is not saying that all man will be saved. He's describing the wicked for who they are and he's not saying that all the wicked find shelter beneath God's wings. But what he is doing is he's using this general term to describe mankind to say that God out of that lump of wicked men took some. That he saved some. 
And these are those who find refuge beneath his wings. These are those that feast on the abundance of his house. We can't flatten this psalm. David is not saying all unregenerate will be saved. David is not saying that those who hate God have fellowship with him. And yet, in this psalm, David is showing that for wicked men, the only answer is a steadfastly loving God. That's the only answer. And we see this God so clearly in being able to save wicked people. Being able to save sons of Adam. That's where we see in this stark contrast. So this psalm is showing that the true hope for wicked men lies in the steadfast love of God or else in judgment. Remember, the psalm is about God's steadfast love and his justice and how it's contrasted to the wicked and their sin. Ultimately, we'll get to it, but at the end of the psalm, we see where the wicked end up. We see where God's justice leads, but for those who turn to this steadfastly loving God, we see verse 8. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. We feast on the abundance of God's house. This is most likely a reference to the tabernacle, to the temple. To receive all of God's covenant blessings. We feast on it. We have no lack of them. Also in the river of delights, in this, the Hebrew word for delights is actually the word Eden. Bringing us back to the imagery of this perfect garden. And all the blessings that was there. And this is what God does. This is what he pours out as a steadfastly loving God. His house. A river of delight. And if we just stopped there, that would seem pretty good. For God's people to receive that, that's great. But what is this really meaning? What is that really pointing to? Ultimately, it's pointing to our Savior. This is so easily seen if we look in the New Testament and see who is the true temple of God. It's Christ. Talking about a river of delights, who is the true water of life? It's Jesus. Who is the bread of life that we feast on? Jesus. The psalm is saying that God is the steadfastly loving God. These are the blessings he give, gives, but these blessings point to Christ. Because the greatest example, the greatest action of steadfast love was in sending the Son. Was in sending that child who came to sinful parents and through his life, through his work, through his death, through his resurrection, brought the love of God to his people. That's what we find. That's what the, the, looking back to Billy Joel's song, that's what the crying saints receive. Those blessings. David is describing these, these evil ones. And how he relates to them. And what David shows us is that our response, when confronted with wickedness, when confronted with the wicked around us, 
when confronted with temptation, it's not to follow their lead because that will end up in destruction and judgment. It's not to think that we're superior because we're not. When oppressed and tempted by, by wickedness, by the wicked, we look to Christ. We turn to the steadfast love of God who is Christ. That's what we do. It's so easy to be wronged by others and rather than turning to God, we respond in like kind. We act like the wicked. That's the way we want to do. It's easy to copy or emulate them. But David is rather saying in this psalm, look, here's the wicked, but look to God. Look to his steadfast love. The wicked's life may appear fun. It may even seem at times true that only the good die young. But the psalm shows us that that's not ultimately the case. Ultimately the case is to receive blessing from this loving God. And this moves into the last two verses, or last few verses in David's prayer. After describing the wicked, after describing God's steadfast love, now he moves to a prayer. In verse 10 he says, Continue your love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. David just described God's steadfast love and now he's just praying for it. Isn't that amazing? David's request is for God to just keep doing what he's been doing. To be who he is. He just said God is the steadfastly loving God. God, continue that. Continue to do that for your people. He prays for what he knows to be true. And this is how you receive true confidence. We should be doing this in our own prayers. Praying for what we already know to be true. Praying that God would continue to love us because we know that he will. Through our prayers, through doing this, we receive that peace and that joy and that comfort because we fix our eyes on this loving God. But the question is, do we believe this? Do we believe what David said? Is God really this loving? What do I mean by this? I mean, what about the one who is single and can't find a spouse and thinks God can't love me then? What about the one who is sick and can't he get healed and thinks, can God truly love me? What about the one who can't overcome wickedness in their own life, it seems? Who continues to fall into temptation? And thinks, can God really love me? I keep praying to him for deliverance and nothing seems to happen. See how easy it is to question, is God really steadfast loving? Is that really the way God is? What about guilt in our lives? Do we think of our past sins and think, can God really forgive us? Well, the answer is yes. David has already applied that. David has already shown that in God being this loving God. But then David moves to the what ends to the wicked. Where do they end? These are the last two verses of the psalm. David says, May the foot of the proud not come against me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. 
David is praying to this God who he knows will give him his answer. And his answer, which we just saw, is all that he would be just loving. Verse 12 is the end of the psalm, and it's really the answer to the first four verses. See how the evildoers lie fallen, thrown down and unable to rise. Where does Billy Joel's anthem of lust end? Is it really better to laugh with the sinners now than cry with the saints? This psalm says, no, it's not. For unbelief, it ends thrust down and unable to rise. The wicked do this, we ourselves do it. We live our lives not thinking of the end. We think of the weekend. We think of what we want to do then. We even might think of Christmas and holidays and the gifts we can have and all that's wonderful stuff. But that's what everyone in the world seems to just focus on. Putting the real questions of where am I going to end up out of their minds. We see this very clearly in unbelief. We see this even in ourselves. When we daily live without looking to our Savior, without looking to God and his steadfast love, without seeking it out, without praying for it. But we do have a God who is steadfastly loving. We have a God who sent Jesus to us as this child. That's the Christmas story, isn't it? Of a loving God. And that's true. But Christmas isn't just about Jesus coming to this earth to save. It is about that. But that baby in a manger came and created division. When Jesus came, there was an ultimatum. Either believe in him, either put your faith in him, or be thrust down. That's where this psalm ends. That's where we see that it's God's steadfast love that's the answer, but it's also there's justice. If there were no justice, there would be no steadfast love. Because what God is saving from is his wrath. His wrath that is justly poured out on unbelief, justly poured out on the wicked who we saw in the first four verses, don't even fear him. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a parable. He tells a parable of a rich man who had much wealth. And the rich man said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. You might insert here, laugh with the sinners. Live that way. God's word continues and says, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's what the answer, that's what the end of this psalm is. People of God, the hope for the believer is not in this world, It's not in the living the way we want. It's not in having our best life now. It's in looking to a God who loves us and putting our whole being into that. 
storing up treasure for ourselves in heaven through our faith in him. It's in the steadfast love of God. It's in Jesus Christ, the greatest of the heavenly blessings. It's in that babe we see in a manger. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you. We thank you for giving us your word. We thank you most of all for sending your son. We know that your relationship to us is one of love because of him. We know that we are in in and of ourselves no better and no different than the wicked. And yet, Lord, we pray. We pray that you would save, that you would save those who are unbelievers that you have elected. We pray that you would continue your steadfast love. We pray that you continue that to us as we face the trials of this life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.